You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Rav David Feinstein, Zechot Sadek Levrocha, Rav Yonason, Rav Yaakov Leib Sachs, Jonathan Sachs, on Shabbos, Zechot Levrocha. And the Yeshiva felt that was incumbent as we are in the Yemei Shiva, as we are here, the Avelim are still sitting Shiva, and we, although we're not sitting Shiva, are so mitzvahed over the loss of these two great, incredible men. A period that we have seen so many pass away, so many of our great leaders um, dealing with so much difficulty. It's difficult for us to put properly in words the extent of our loss. But I think it's important as a community to take note and take record and to hear, and especially as both of these men touched so many people and were so important that we've decided to have a, a forum, so, so to speak, of speakers to be maspid and to give harocha about Rabbi David Feinstein's atzal and Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Yaakov Leib Sachs, that's all. I want to start the program first, the Rashiva of, of the Shiva of Newark, and the Rav in Bergenfield of Or Torah, uh, Rabbi Tuvi Weiss, who is going to start, who is going to lead us in the Kapitel Tilim, preceded by Divrei Harocha and Hespit as well. So, Rabbi Weiss, I'm going to uh, uh, put on the screen the Tehillim forever. You may have been bothered by the first Rashi on this week's parsha, Parsha's Chayisara, that deals with the life, but really the passing of Sora Imenu. It's somewhat a somewhat of a well-known Rashi. Rashi says, and all of us would ask the same question: Why is it that the pasuk, in referring to Sora's life, talk in such a strange manner, Meya Shana, V'yesum Shana V'sheva Shana. V'yiv Chai Yisara was the life of Sara, 127 years. And it's, uh, as Rashi says, Nechtav Shana B'chal Klal U'klal. That the term Shana, years, is uh, mentioned after each category of, of Meya, Esrim, and Sheva. And why is it, why is it, Spelled out like that, and Rashi tells us as follows: That when Sarah was 100 years old, she was like 20 years old in terms of her not having succumbed to Avera, succumbed to sin. And when she was 20, she was as beautiful as a seven-year-old. You may have heard Reb Ruvain Feinstein Shalita at the uh, Levaya spoke about his brother, and Rabbi Tender also spoke about his brother-in-law. And one of the things that Rav Tender referred to was the idea of the seven-year-old. What I want to discuss for a moment now is the idea of the 20-year-old, because Rashi says something strange. Rashi says, Ma bas esrim, just like a 20-year-old, lo chata. At that point in time, we could say that under 20, one was not responsible for their actions. It was like what we would call a 13-year-old or a 12-year-old today. Just like a 20-year-old 
had not yet sinned. Also, a hundred-year-old, when her daughter was a hundred, she was like 20, and that she had not succumbed to sin. Of course, there's one line that I left out that I want to discuss today just for a few minutes, and that's the line where Rashi writes, how do we know that when Sarah was 20, she had not sinned? Where do, where do we learn that? Where, does, where, does, where do we have that assumption from? So Rashi says, Because before 20, I guess maybe before Matan Torah, the halacha was that um, one was not responsible for their actions. There was no onshin, there was no punishment. So let's, let's understand for a moment. Just like Sarah had not done any Averis before 20. Why? Because she was a not bat onshin, because she was not responsible. She wasn't, there wasn't going to be any repercussions. There weren't going to be any punishments. So too, when she was 100, and that's why the Torah says, to compare the 100-year-old Sarah to the 20-year-old Sarah. And the Mepharshim ask the obvious question. Just because someone is not a Bas Onshin, just because someone's not responsible <clears throat> for their actions and there won't be any repercussions, does that mean that there's no Avera? Can we say that someone who's under Bar Mitzvah does not do any Averis? How does Einabas Onshin equal to Lochata? The stipler in his, one of his earliest, maybe his earliest sefer in Shari Tvuna, Simon Tezvav, has a long arichas about this. And he quotes from the Chazanish. And Rebchaim Kanievsky quotes from his father, the stipler from this piece, that it's obvious from the very fact that there's an Indian, there's a discussion whether Bezdin prevents a cotton from doing something wrong, from eating the Velus or doing other Averis, that there is an Avera, there is a Maisa Avera, there is something negative about a cotton doing an Avera, despite the fact that they're not going to be held responsible in terms of Onshin. So the question once again is, how does Rashi know, or why does Rashi say, what does Rashi mean when he says, Ma bas chof, lo chata, that just like Sarah when she was 20 had not sinned, and how do we know that she had not sinned? Because she wasn't going to be punished for it. Maybe she sinned because she wasn't going to be punished for it. person knows that they're not going to get caught. There's more of a reason to give them a license to sin. Hey, now I can sin. I'm not going to be punished. So there's a sefer called Kuhuna Salimelech who explains something, who says something which I think highlights on one level, on some level, the very lives of Reb David Feinstein and of Jonathan Sachs. It explains as follows. Rashi is not telling us in this line the reason why Sarah didn't, how we know that Sarah did not sin, but what he is explaining is quite the opposite. Sarah, when she was 20, there was no reason for her not to sin because she wasn't going to get punished for it. Because under 20, at that period in time, there were no punishments for one's actions under 20 years old. So why, in fact, when she was 17-year-old Sarah or a 15-year-old Sarah or a 12-year-old Sarah, had she not sinned? So Rashi tells us, the Kona Seremelech, Rabbi Leza Rubinstein, a Rav in Europe, 70, 80 years ago, explains that Sarah Imenu didn't sin when she was 16 or 17 or 18, under 20, despite the fact that she wasn't a Basonj. Do we not do things that are inappropriate or wrong because we're going to get punished? Or do we not do things that are inappropriate and wrong 
because they're inappropriate and wrong. <laughs> just like Sarah when she was under 20 had not sinned. And it wasn't because she was a Basonshin. It wasn't because of the repercussions, because of any punishment that was going to come. Quite the opposite. Despite the fact that she wasn't a Basonshin, she still had not sinned. Because it's wrong to do Averis. It's wrong to do the wrong thing. Person doesn't litter, not just because they're going to get caught by a cop and get a ticket. Person doesn't litter because it's the wrong thing to do. We have respect for the society around us. We have, we have respect for Hashem's world. Ah, but I'm, there's no onish for littering. There's no onish for the Averis under 20. That's true. And just like when Sarah was older, just like when she was 20, she had not succumbed to Avera for the reason that it was the wrong thing to do. So too, when she was older, she lived her life in a way where the things that she did were not because of the repercussions of punishment, but because she wanted to do what was right in Hashem's eyes and what was right for the world around her. And that's the lesson for us. It's interesting. It's a, there is a uh, bracha that for those of us who have the zechus to have bar mitzvah boys, so there's a bracha that we say called Baruch Shepetrani. Baruch Shepetrani. It's a funny bracha, Baruch Shepetrani. A boy is 13 years old. Ravavadi says you say it for a, a daughter as well. She's 12 years old. And the first thing you say as he gets his aliyah at the Torah is thank God I'm no longer responsible. Thank God I'm no longer responsible for this kid. I hope the kid doesn't understand that bracha because it's a funny thing to hear the first thing. You're older, good. Now it's your responsibility, not my responsibility. Imagine you get a call from the Rebbe and the Rebbe says, you know, we have to talk about uh, your son. He's, he's causing problems in class. And the first thing you say to the principal or to the Rebbe is, hey, listen, you weren't at the bar mitzvah, but I already said Baruch Petrani. Baruch Petrani may also mean not just I'm no longer responsible, but the way that we deal with a child once he's a bit older is not through ownership. It's not through punishments. It's not through threatening. It's through explaining. It's through love. And the lives of the two great people that we lost live lives not just because, and they taught us to live lives, not just because of the repercussions of what may happen as a result of doing the wrong thing, but because of the lives that we live have to be ones where we cause and create Kiddush Hashem. <clears throat> because it's the right thing to do. Because it's the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do.
Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Weiss. Uh, I think it's appropriate that we said the Mizmar Shir Hanukkah Sabayas David just this year. Uh, Rabbi Sachs spoke about the appropriateness of that capital, and he pointed out that even though the capital speaks about David Amelch recovering from illness, it's not a Hidot to Hashem. It's not thanking God for saving him and bringing him back from the brink of death. The idea of the uh, of the of the Hidot is to actually build Mizmer Shir Chanukah Sabayis Ledovid, Rabbi Sachs said, that when we go through trauma and pain, we talk about building, we talk about what we can do positively and big ideas, even after we've suffered, and maybe especially since we have. Um, so I think it's appropriate that that is the capital that opens up our appreciation for these men. Uh, I, I'd like to now call on uh, the Rashiva of Yeshiva of Newark, Rabbi Shmuel Skeist, to share some uh, observations and harochas on Rabbi David Feinstein's itself. So um, I, I only asked one Shaila to Rabbi David Feinstein, but it was a, a, a Shaila that uh, for the most part has defined uh, much of what I've done over the last uh, 30 years. Um, so what was the Shaila? Uh, when I was, I was uh, starting out in Kirov originally, and uh, I wanted to play music. And the music that I play, as some of you may know, is not what, uh, not what the Hamoin Am calls Jewish music. I'm a singer-songwriter. I write songs in English. They're not necessarily always about Yiddishkeit, although sometimes they are. And um, I wanted to be able to play them in venues that uh, where people who were not not yet religious uh, would 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 come to hear it and uh, try to see if I could use that as having an influence on on people or maybe making connections with people, etc. And I started speaking to to some people about whether this was a good idea, and um, immediately. Uh, almost everyone I spoke to at the time, this is 30 years ago, started raising all the Shilas that might be involved with uh, such a, such an activity. So I went to David, I actually went with uh, a cousin and close friend of mine and uh, the head of a major, um, very, very major organization that's involved in Kirov. And the three of us went and sat in his office. In those days, I know in the later years, it didn't, it didn't stay that way because too many people were trying to reach David. But uh, in those years, uh, Reb David, the way to reach him was still, and it was that way up until very recently, you would call the payphone at MTJ and somebody would uh, tell you if Reb David was there and available and he would have to come out of the base medrash to answer the payphone in the hall. That was how you reached him. Um, uh, and so it was interesting sort of setting up that appointment. But in any case, we went there, we sat down and... Um, Reb David uh, listened and he asked a few questions and he gave me some very interesting, uh, he gave very interesting sock. He said, for sure, that I should do it. He said uh, three things. One is don't do it in an establishment that's known for its non-kosher food. So because at that point, you are, uh, um, perhaps people will come to hear you, they may eat the food, they may not realize that if it's known for, if they happen to have food there, that's one thing. But if, but if they're known for their food, 
then you should not uh, you should not play there. That that was number one. Number two, he said, um, to in, in response to the people who were asking questions about whether this was an appropriate thing to do, he says, "Listen, you'll see what happens if it works out, and you're able to reach people. That's wonderful." And um, and then somebody raised the question, "What about shidduchim for your kids? Are you worried about what people are going to say?" So Rav David said, "Well, you know, if that's uh, if it comes to that, don't worry. You can always do tshuva." Uh, that was his, the second thing that he said. And the third thing that he said, uh, which I thought was even more amazing, was he says, somebody else who was there at this, at this meeting asked him, so what, what if there's a yeshiva guy who comes, a guy who doesn't belong in such an establishment, but he hears that you're playing there. So, um, and then he shows up. So what about that? So David says, yeah, Taka, that's a problem because uh, you, you shouldn't be attracting people who wouldn't ordinarily come to such an establishment. So if you see such a person there, you should tell them to leave. So I said, I said, but uh, uh, I said, Roshiva, I, I, I can't just go over to somebody and just tell them to leave. Like, if they're coming there, they, you know, maybe they shouldn't be there. But so he says, yeah, you're right. You're right. You can't do that. He said, he thinks for a minute. He says, if they, if you see somebody that you really feel like, you know, that they shouldn't be there and that they themselves probably wouldn't want to be there, um, but they're only coming for you. So he says, so get to know them, get close with them and then tell them to leave. Which I thought was a beautiful, a beautiful way of saying it. And um, uh, you know, he, he was just such a such an incredibly. I spoke to. Uh, we don't have time to show this clip, but I I had a video of of a of a good friend of mine, uh, Ari Sashtein, who works for H New York, who um, went through his own journey when he was a teenager and uh, has been involved in Kirov now for many years, very successfully. He doesn't look like your typical Kirov uh, guy. He wears a trucker's cap and. Uh, and uh, and uh, usually not 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 a button down shirt, you know. He wears a wears a t shirt. So he he's he to- he talks. I I spoke with him for about an hour last night, and um, it was hard to edit it down. So I'll just share one story, and then we'll move on. But one story that he told me was he had two Talmidim that used to how how did he attract them? He used to have breakfast in the morning in Manhattan, right near one of the major clubs. And so some of the Jews who would be hanging out at these clubs, I guess on a Thursday night or a Saturday night, they would come early in the morning. He would have breakfast for them. So he had these two brothers that were not religious and they, they started coming to his breakfast after they'd be down, dancing and hanging out and partying all night at the club. And then they'd come to his breakfast. So um, he, he, after he was working them for, with them for a number of years, they learned that he asked all his shilas to David Feinstein. One of them went to Israel and, um, and had a... Uh, uh, a wonderful year, and he was becoming more from, and 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 the the other brother wanted to go also, and and the yeshiva that he was in was putting a lot of pressure on him that he has to come back his second year. What was the problem? His their mother was not well; they didn't have a father. The mother was very very ill, and uh, there was just the two boys to take care of her, and an aunt who who lived nearby who also took care of her. So they said, well, maybe the aunt could take care of her. So Ari says to them, I can't, I, I don't know what to tell you. So they said, well, you ask everything to Reb David Feinstein. We want to ask Reb David Feinstein. So Ari brought them to Reb David to ask them, this Shiloh, what they should do. He listens to the Shiloh and he turns to the guy who had not yet gone to Israel, the brother who had not yet gone to Israel. And he says, okay, you should go to Israel. Um, uh, he turns to the other brother and says, you have to stay home. And he says, I want to just tell you, halachically, you know, you could both go. He says, but but that's not the issue here. The, the main issue here is your mother and your aunt, and particularly your aunt, 
who, if you do things just according to halacha, will never understand that you're abandoning your mother. And so that's the main reason. So he says, so you can go because you didn't go yet. He says, but just know that your brother is giving up a, a second year in Israel for you. So you better take your year seriously and use your time wisely. And you have to stay home because your mother needs you and your aunt should not have the impression that, that uh, halacha is, not, uh, is, is anything less than, than uh, completely caring of, of your mother who's not well. And uh, Ari said that, you know, he, he, he just, every time he brought someone there, every time he asked him any type of shayla, the shayla was always very specific to the situation, not, not specific to what people wanted to hear or what people were afraid of or what people were, were, were thinking from a, from a from perspective or from any other type of perspective, just what is the halacha and what is this situation called for, which is, of course, what sak is supposed to be and what halacha is supposed to be. Uh, so I just thought it was... Uh, worth sharing sharing that story, and um, I think that the loss to Klai Yisrael is one that we probably don't fully get because Rav David was so humble and and uh, was uh, sort of stuck away there in MTJ and in, in the Lower East Side. So uh, we should we should only know Simchas. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Rabbi Skaist, and I um, appreciate. Uh, what you're saying, and I think all of us are hearing so many stories that are now coming out of these type of, in, of incredible psalkim that are so uh, direct and positive and really show the godless hatayra. Um, I, I, we have the schus uh, of having Rabbi Rosenblatt with us, and I think that this really underscores the fact that we could really, Rabbi David Feinstein deserves a whole Hespit and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs deserves a whole hour. And this is just really the tip of the iceberg in order to do something during the Shiva, during the time that, 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 that the Avelim are, 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 are in the strongest sense of Avelis. So, um, Rabbi Rosenblatt, I know that you have, uh, has, has informed me of his long relationship with Rabbi Sachs. And if he could share, uh, his insight and his understanding and give us uh, 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 some perhaps even a, a greater understanding of what it is that we've lost with with the with the un- terrible unfortunate death of Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Rosenblatt. Thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Kivalevich, and I'm honored to be invited to sit in the company of the wonderful Rosh Yeshiva of the Yeshiva of Newark, which I know intimately. It's one of one of the jewels in the world of Chinuch. If people only knew it would have to, uh, it would have to create a gallery for standing room only. Um, I'd like to actually, if I may, begin with Reb David Feinstein's Echert Tzadik Livrocha and then move on to Lord Rabbi Sachs Livrocha because I believe they are a fascinating study in contrasts. If you think of David Zal, you think of a person for whom Torah was mother's milk. He was the son of the Godel Hador. He basically spent his entire life in within the walls of a single humble yeshiva. Many of those years spent watching his father carry the weight of the Jewish world on his holy shoulders. And 
he evolved in such a natural evolution within those walls to be one upon whose shoulders the same Kali Israel rested. If you met him, and I also was there to ask him a Shaila once, um, if you could speak about a prevailing atmosphere of anti-glamour, that was uh, Rabbi David Feinstein. He was soft-spoken. His office looked like the office of a down-on-the-heels yeshiva high school. His suit, I wouldn't say it was shabby, but it was certainly nondescript. His well-worn hat did not proclaim any of the malchus that his learning, his reputation deserved. So he was, in a sense, a person whose first language was Torah and who emerged into the modern world with extraordinary intellect, clarity, precision of language, even when he spoke English. Um, But every once in a while, you were reminded that his natural environment was the world of Shas and Poskin. I think that even in that, it is um, worth remembering those critical first eight years. And those eight years were not spent in a yeshiva. They were spent in a town in Russia in the darkest time of Jewish history. And one of the Maspidim mentioned, and I'm so moved by it, that Rav Moshe Zatzal was not one of those who from the bris announced that he was raising a godol, that he was raising the godol hador. His concerns were that he should have us, that his son should have the opportunity to be a Shomer Shabbos. And if you read the heartbreaking tshuvas that Rav Moshe writes about Tamir Chachomim and Yirei Shamayim, whose children became communists and had in their old age to depend on children who ate Chazer Treif, you could imagine what the nightmares of the young Rav Moshe Feinstein were for his little boy. And so those first eight years, the formative years, were not focused specifically on the future of a man who by early middle age had gone through Shas a hundred times. It was based on the core Midos someone who would be a mensch and Yereshamayim, someone who would live in the world with a sense of gratitude but not entitlement. And when that little boy came to America, and when that little boy became a godel, the core of menschlichkeit and midos and simple Yereshamayim were the foundation. And to to know him or to hear any of the stories about him, how he related to people, is to understand just how mighty the planks of that foundation proved to be. Even when you see him 
sitting among the other Gedole Hador, he looks almost bemused to be in the picture. And that quality meant that he never lost his connection with the hearts of the simple Jews and his empathy in his psak for their dilemmas and their pain. Jonathan Sachs is, in a sense, a kind of a mirror opposite. And when you think of Jonathan Sachs, I am reminded of the famous image from the Midrash that Rashi cites when he tries to explain the mitzvah of the Why is it that HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves the Ger Tzedek so much? And he says, those of you who have been members of Am Yisrael from birth, you are the sheep of my flock. You were used to the notion that each evening you come in and take refuge in my corral and accept its limitations. But he, the Gertzetic, he is the noble stag, the symbol of the freedom of the wild world. And when that noble stag bows his head and comes in to my corral, how can I not love him with a special love? Jonathan Sachs, before he became a rabbi, before he became a lord, before he became a chief rabbi, was a great Englishman. He was English academic nobility. And he was already a young man when he really began seriously to shift his path from becoming a Don to becoming a Rav. And it is the twin visions of Rav Nochem Rabinovich and the Lubavitcher Rebbe Zichron and Livrocha who saw the potential who expressed the Almighty's special love of the noble stag of the hillsides who had chosen to devote his life to the flocks of God, to Am Yisrael, and supported, supported Jonathan. When I met him first, he wasn't chief rabbi at all. My wife and I as newlyweds, were making our first visit together to London. And we were sort of staying in the city and we heard there was an Orthodox shul called the Marble Arch and that it had a remarkable young rabbi. And of course, you know, as a young rabbi myself, I always loved to hear a great preacher. So uh, we took the long walk. It was about a 45 minute walk from our hotel. And we went to the Marble Arch. And Friday evening, they davened in a tiny base medrash. I thought to myself, this is the marble arch. This is the whole thing. It's a little base medrash, a small minion. And Jonathan said a few words, but he only had to open his mouth and you knew. And I went up afterwards and introduced myself to him. And he was, as he was, always gracious and warm. 
And we told him we'd see him the next day. I came the next day to shul on time. He meets me in the vestibule of the marble arch. And he says, Jonathan, I'm having trouble with my throat. He says, I've just caught a terrible cold. I wonder if you would speak in my place. So I had nothing there. It's not exactly giant Torah library. I managed to get my hands on the Torah Tamima and did a little quick whipping up. And so the first time that we actually met, I had gone to hear him and Nebuch, he ended up hearing me. But he invited us for Kiddush and we met his lovely wife, Elaine, one of the most noble, humble, genuine people you will ever meet. The real, the, the platinum setting in which this diamond's luster came to be the property of the world. And got to know their children who were very young at the time. I don't even know if they were all born. And we became friendly when he, sometime the next year, became chief. I get a call in Riverdale, and uh, he said, I'm going to become the chief rabbi, but I don't know what's going to become of my beloved congregation. Do you think you might consider coming over and becoming the rabbi of the Marble Arch? And in those days, Jews College still existed, and you'll be dean of Jews College, and, and we'll work together. Well, obviously, history had other ideas in mind, because my children have wonderful grandparents and needed them, so we didn't. We didn't go, but we stayed friendly. Uh, subsequently, he visited our shul many times, drawn not so much by me, but by the fact that our chazan, Shim Kramer, a very gifted young chazan and, and, and musician, was very dear to him from London. And so he visited with us many times. As a visitor, I saw a somewhat additional side to to Lord Sachs because let's understand why it is that he is so remarkably beloved, why his penetration in Anglo Jewry is so deep and intimate and that I think goes to two two qualities one, his incredible Hasmada that even when he was chief rabbi and carried the great administrative responsibilities of the United Synagogue, the time that he set aside for study and for writing was absolutely sacrosanct. He never stopped being productive. And so he has produced a, a body of work which is almost unexampled for it's sheer volume and consistent quality. It's really a, a remarkable body of work. Within that body of work, you see the shifting of the gift. During his early years, he was largely our champion, our gladiator. It was he who took on the high-profile atheists who became popular and who argued very eloquently for the value of religion in modernity, for the power of religion to catalyze benevolence and generosity and charity, not only um, 
conflict and 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 prejudice. But it was his language that was so remarkable because he understood not only how to use English in a noble way, because under all of that education and nobility, there was also a man of great emotional sensitivity and tenderness. He knew how to use English to touch the strings of the heart, particularly of English speakers. Not only that, and you know, you'll find in his writings the constant quotations from sociologists and historians and psychologists. It's because his finger never left the pulse of the particular anxieties with which the modern thinking person suffers rather than the view of the from person who thinks that, that the unstructured secular world is a place you can eat anything you want, you can do anything you want. Oh, they must be having so much fun on this side. Jonathan, who knew their world from the inside, knew that at its core was hollowness and longing and emptiness and pain. And he knew how to speak to those things. And he knew that those things evolve with time and he never took his finger off the pulse. And so let me just show you as an example, because in the second half of his great creative enterprise, Jonathan Sachs did something even more extraordinary than engaging the the great challenges of our time, he went back and he took the most familiar Jewish texts, the Siddur, the Chumash, the Haggadah, and he gave them music to sing in a way that people could hear that a, a music that touched way beyond the world of committed Jews. Let me just give you an example. Taken at random, the first paragraph in his introduction to his Siddur. Prayer is the language of the soul in conversation with God. It is the most intimate gesture of the religious life and the most transformative. The very fact that we can pray testifies to the deepest elements of Jewish faith, that the universe did not come into existence accidentally, nor are our lives destined to be bereft of meaning. The universe exists and we exist because someone, the one God, author of all, brought us into existence with love. It is this belief more than any other that redeems life from solitude and fate from tragedy. What is remarkable about this passage, when you listen to it with the voice of someone for whom English is a second language, who believes that the job of 
speaking Torah in English is to be impressive and to use big words. There's not one SAT word in that paragraph. They're all so gentle. Listen to how, listen to the words of the Shemona Esrei. And this is going to be an important point. Who is like you, master of might? And to whom can you be compared, O king who brings death and gives life and makes salvation grow? I would put this in contrast to Art Scroll's translation of the same passage, but time does not permit. But suffice it to say, in the development of the Siddur, each of these two volumes represents a very important station because the Art Scroll Siddur was primarily written for people longing to pray halachically, correctly, to bow in the right places, to step back. The translations were never meant to be vehicles of prayer. They were meant to be instructive so that you could learn what the Hebrew meant and then you could pray, then you could more daven. That's why the art scroll sitter is is riddled with Hashem, a word which reminds you that English is not a way to speak to God. By the time Jonathan wrote his sitter, it was with a different mission altogether. It was so that the worship could begin. The conversation, as he calls it, began on the English side of the page. That the words harmonized with the aches and aspirations of the hearts of the people he knew so well. It was a sitter for a conversation with the Rebbe And if you made it over to the Hebrew, Ashrechan. But if you didn't, you were still entitled to talk to God. Now, I'd like to say one, one, one more point, because I know I'm running over time. The other element beside this hasmada, beside this gift for idiom, which, by the way, he has shared with very few, come to mind Professor Heschel, Elie Wiesel, and in a slightly different category, but sharing this trait of Soloveitchik, the capacity to hear the music of language as well as, as the meaning of the words. There was another aspect. Over the years, there is hardly a major and many minor Jewish communities that Jonathan Sachs did not visit. He was there. He was in person, so to speak. And when he came to a community, he had a remarkable, um, I would call them bag of tricks, aside from his majestic content and language. Because before Jonathan Sachs would speak, first of all, he was a very gracious guest. He always made it a point to build up the local rabbi in the eyes of his people. And to show that the the men who held the communities day by day had his great respect. 
He also had a marvelous sense of humor. I'll never forget he, one of his jokes was, he said, he said there was a individual, certain individual said one day, I dreamt that I was giving a speech in the House of Lords and awakened to discover that I was. <laughs> he was, and he had many wonderful jokes and quips. And because people had seen him, touched him, shaken his hand, bought a sitter that he had autographed personally, when they read his works coming out week by week, when they anticipated his Divrei Torah, it wasn't a font speaking to them. It was this great rabbi whom they had touched, who had come to visit them in their home communities. Now, I just finished. There's one aspect that I think needs interpretation to the American audience. Because there was one thing we Americans found perhaps a little odd. When Jonathan spoke, he could not give a speech without mentioning this prime minister and that prime minister. And just the other day, I was talking to the Archbishop of Canterbury. It sounded like a, a kind of a, an obsessive name dropping. You can't understand this unless you're English. For the English who live to this day as kind of self-conscious outsiders to the real English, and especially for the community of observant Jews in England who live as a kind of marginal minority, the fact that their teacher spoke on the BBC, the fact that the greats of the land consulted him, the fact that he was a personal friend of the royal family, this raised their stature, their sense that they could combine devotion to Kali Yisrael and to Torah with being authentically English. I think we Americans are perhaps spoiled by the fact that in the melting pot, we're really no worse than any of the other lumps of chocolate that have fallen in. We don't question, are we real Americans? It's one of the reasons that Jews are so outspoken politically on, on all points on the spectrum. And this today, Baruch Hashem, includes Orthodox Jews. And so to understand what Jonathan was to the English as an exemplar of Torah which walked with the nobles of the land, you have to you have to think English for a moment. You know, my great grandfather became probably not only the most admired, but the most beloved chazan of his time. Yesula Rosenblatt, for those who haven't figured it out. Because of this same combination, his phonograph recordings, which were relatively new at the time, took his voice everywhere. But his travels, his visits to all of the communities, his concerts, his places at the tables of Frum people across the country and the world meant that when they heard his voice on the record, 
He was their Yosra. I hope and I pray that although his life was cut so short, his voice is so magnificently represented by the tremendous body of work that he gave to Kal Yisrael, that he will remain the beloved noble stag, not only to the Rabboni Shalom, but to the Rabboni Shalom's flocks for many, many generations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Rosenblatt. Uh, the, um, it is, it's almost difficult to, to follow and to add some concluding comments here, but I think that, uh, <laughs> we must, uh, just perhaps put a little, uh, uh at least a, a period and a pause. And I think that, uh, I'm going to just give you the video here so I can speak to you. Um, I think that in contemplating these immense losses of Rav Feinstein and Rabbi Sachs, I think it's also important to know that as great as they were, their humility about what they weren't was also striking. Uh, Rav it was a it was a pella to everyone when Rav Moshe passed away. Why Rav David, who was the closest to Rav Moshe, as you said, in his prayers and in his learning, Rav David became the ultimate chavrusa and also the barometer for Rav Moshe's shtiklach because he would share them with Rav David and they would go over them. And yet, and no one understood Rav Moshe's havana and things better than Rav David did. Even Rav Herschel Schechter and others still connected to Rav David to find out what it was Rav Moshe meant. Rav David did not speak at Rav Moshe's Leviah. He was not a Maspid. He said a Dvartera at the end of the Shiva. When the Shiva ended, Rav David said uh, uh, some Divrei Teira. I heard last night from uh, Baruch Moskowitz that he asked his Rebbe, why didn't you speak? He said, the purpose of a Hespid is to move people, is to let people understand and, and penetrate within them. I'm not a speaker. That's not my talent. I don't have that gift. And therefore, I'm not just going to prop myself up there to be able to do that. And this knowledge of what he was of course, they, they, many have said that he became uh, much more uh, gifted, perhaps, in giving things over. But when Rav Moshe was nifter in the, in the 80s, Rav David was honest about that. And I think the same sort of honesty, although in a different way, was displayed by Rabbi Sachs. Uh, as someone who's not only been a congregation rabbi, but also been sort of a gadfly to congregation rabbis, I know that congregation rabbis sometimes have a problem. And other Rabbanim have a problem dealing with Talmud HaChachamim. People who lived like Rab David in the world of Pesach and were threatened. I think Rabbi Sachs knew that where his role was and that we never heard Rabbi Sachs come down in a Shiloh where 
either connected or in some way, in any sort of radical or different way than where the halacha should have been pointing. He understood what his strengths were. I know that at the Hesped, others have said about Rabbi Sachs that that's what he was planning to do. His third act would have been that act where he would go back and and, 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 and fulfill the complete idea of Kolatei But it's a testament to both of them that they were so honest about who they were and developed the strengths that they had so completely. So many of us err because we get a swell head about what we can do and we end up going in the wrong direction and going out of our purview. And I think that both of the both of these men should, should prove to us how greatness can be found within what they are able to do. I just want to end um, uh, uh, today with to emphasize something that Rabbi Skase had said and Rabbi Weiss pointed out and so did, and Rabbi Rosenblatt, um, the Psokim of Rab David are crucial. And, and it, it, they are, in a way, not just, of course, they're individually, like Rabbi Skates' Psak. They are catered to that person individually. But what they reveal is a Mahalachim Psak that is so important today. And, and, and we have to be worried about missing that. I'll just give over one little point. Uh, a good friend of mine, uh, who was uh, a leader in NCSY, uh, went to Rab David and asked him if it's proper for NCSY to make inroads among conservative Judaism uh, and, and run programs in conservative shuls when those shuls had children that according to our standards of halacha, were not halachically Jewish. And this would perhaps have been true in the reform shows too, although I don't think the question was there, but it would have been the same question. And although NCSY and other Kirov programs had great content, it was because of this great content and because it was so good and true that there was uh, people who had raised the point that this should not be necessarily given over to groups that would include what we assumed were non-Jewish children. And the fact that they would become influenced by the Torah would maybe cause them to interconnect with the real Jews and create questions in halacha of marriage down the road. Perhaps it was better to just leave it alone and not even begin to stir the pot because we're talking about giving Torah over to non-Jews, where there's a shaila of possible mamzerus, bechwal Yisrael. Reb David heard the question, and he said, from his perspective, these questions are not relevant. Because a person who believes himself a Jew, whether he's halakhically or not, is someone you can give Torah over to. He's, he's identifies as a Jew. That's what he's probably going to be. And within his sphere, the fact that Klape Shemaya, in, in God's eyes, we know that the person isn't a Jew, that doesn't dictate whether you can teach him Torah or not. Teaching Torah to non-Jews, Rabbi David said, is about giving that gift over to people who will misuse it, who will use it to strengthen their 
society who will misinterpret it as enemies back towards us, but not to someone who believes he's part of us. And whether he is or not, technologically, that's what he is internally. And in terms of the mamzerus, the fact that this child who might have come from a divorce which wouldn't be sanctioned halachically and therefore is still technically the son of a, of, of a married woman who, was, uh, who had married, who had lived with someone she wasn't allowed to, Rabbi David said that is a problem that could occur. But look at the loss that will happen if we don't reach out to them. If we don't reach out to them, then what we're talking about is complete rejection of Jewish values and totally involved with the non-Jewish one and people that we will lose to, Claudius would lose them completely. So Rabbi David said that's a risk that has to be taken. And when, if they become from and then they find a nice shidduch, then we'll be mavar, the shayla, and work it out. But not to give them and not to bring them and make them part of our programs, chas v'shol. So I think that and there's probably hundreds of other psalkim, and there's people here that are listening, choshevet people who, who who could who could be made to this as well. But I thought that it just captures what the godel hador, the look of the godel and posek hador needs to be, and that's the type of halachic looking at, at, at big issues that that we have to fill that vacuum. And and in the same way, I know that Rabbi Sachs's Torah is going to 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 rise and it's going to be studied and that voice will still be there. It's my tefillah and I hope everyone's here that Rabdovid's Torah will be nespashet chutzah, that there will people will be malak at those psokim and people will be able to see them and, 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 and see them as the model for what they were. Galat, Tzimzach, with complete, with, as you said, Rabbi, without any extra words at all, but straight to the point and where they should be. So, um, we've now reached about an hour. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 